Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. Rare diseases are rare. No one study has that many people in it. But by bringing lots of data sets together, we ended up with something like 20,000 patients worth of data. And that is meaningful to everyone. So by supporting advocacy or advocacy groups, you're supporting these projects, which will then support your ability to run a clinical trial. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Dr. Jane Larkindale. She's the Vice President of Clinical Science at PepGen. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here. So this episode of Bench Talk Bio is going to be a bit of a departure from what we normally do in that today our focus is not so much on the professional journey of my guest or the detailed discussion on the company which she works for. Rather, today we're going to discuss the topic that has brought Dr. Larkindale to this company and the company to that space. And that space is the development of therapies for rare diseases. Today we're going to talk about, and the well, we're going to talk about that because the timing is right. We're heading into Rare Disease Day, and that's why we're recording today. So I want to talk about how we're going to raise the visibility of this space and how investors can become involved and how companies can participate and be successful. So first, to orient our discussion, a definition and a few facts. Rare orphan diseases are defined in the United States as diseases or conditions that have an incidence of less than 200,000 patients or elsewhere in the world as having the prevalence ranging from less than 1 in 2,000 or less than 1 in 50,000 individuals. So using this criteria, that works out to approximately 30 million individuals in the United States currently living with a rare disease. Of the diseases these patients suffer from, and there are some 7,000 of them, the National Organization for Rare Disorders estimates that more than 90% are still without an FDA-approved treatment. These diseases fall into certain categories, metabolic diseases, chromosomal disorders, skin diseases, neuromuscular diseases, so on. Some are well-known, uh, cystic fibrosis for one, others far less so. For instance, Kahneman's disease. This is a neurological disorder. No, I don't have it, but it seems a relative in my distant past did characterize this disease and managed to name it. So this is also particular to our speaker today. Most neuromuscular disorders, or NMDs, are rare diseases. And my guest today, Dr. Larkindale, knows a good bit about that. Jane, what sort of numbers are we looking at for the MMDs? So each neuromuscular disease is a rare disease in and of itself, but there are many different neuromuscular diseases. We generally talk about there being about 40 different neuromuscular diseases, but it's probably far more than that if you think about it in terms of specific mutations, many of which cause similar or related diseases or phenotypes. So for example, the limb girdles, muscular dystrophies, or Chakomuri tooth, there are lots of different mutations that cause those diseases. But each one of these diseases is very rare. The most common of them, things like Duchenne muscular dystrophy or myotrophic lateral sclerosis that you might have heard of, maybe 10 per 100,000 people. 
So each individual disease is very rare, but in total, there are a large number of neuromuscular diseases out there. All right. So let's touch on a bit of what we can do about that. And this might be the best time for the elevator pitch for PepGen. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk about PepGen, which is the company that I work for. We're a biotech company. We're focused currently on neuromuscular diseases. We eventually expect to also move into neurological diseases. We're developing what we call enhanced delivery oligonucleotides, which are oligonucleotides attached to a peptide to deliver them to where they need to go. Historically, there's been a lot of promise for oligos to treat a whole range of diseases, but the challenge, particularly in neuromuscular diseases, is delivery. They work Hmm. really well in cells, but you can't get them to where you want them to be in the body. And they can't work very well if they're not where they need to be. And that's what our peptides do is they help these oligos really get into muscle, including muscles like the diaphragm and the heart that are critically important in many neuromuscular diseases. And they get in really, really well. So at PepGen, we're developing this platform technology for a number of diseases. Our lead program is in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and Mm -hmm. our second program is in myotonic dystrophy. They're both rare neuromuscular diseases. The main target for both of these is skeletal muscle and the heart. Myotonic in particular also has CNS manifestations, which we hope we can get to. So we're really excited about how our technology may be able to help get these oligonucleotide drugs to where they need to be to work. There are already a few approved drugs for Duchenne in the US that are based on oligonucleotides, but they produce very, very low amounts of dystrophin in the protein we're trying to produce. With our delivery technology, we hope to really improve on that. And we're really excited to be going into the clinic soon with our lead program. Excellent. I hope we can touch on that a little bit later. But first, I want to get just a bit more about what brought you to the space. So my path to where I am now is probably fairly unorthodox in that I'm a molecular biologist by training, and I came to the United States really to pursue an academic career like everybody else. But at some point, I decided to move on from academia, and I landed in the research department at the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which many of your listeners will associate with the Jerry Lewis Telethon, nonprofit hmm. that's been around for a really long time, yep. and probably not with research. That's where I got into working with neuromuscular diseases. And it's really hard once you're connected with these communities to leave these communities. These are people with there's a huge unmet need. These are parents with children who are very sick, who are dying, adults with these diseases who are very sick. And I never really managed to get out of the space. From there, I went into consulting. Eventually, I worked for the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance, another rare neuromuscular disease that I'm still very involved with. And eventually, I moved to the Critical Path Institute, where I launched a global regulatory science consortium to really work at accelerating drug development for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in particular. Having run that for six years, as you do, I ended up getting dragged into a whole number of other rare diseases, eventually working on projects to accelerate drug development across the whole rare disease space. And from there, I moved to PepGen. So it was quite a jump to come out of the nonprofit space into a company, but really exciting because I believe in the platform we have, and I think it's going to be able to get at a number of these diseases that I'm really interested in finding treatments and cures for. All right, we're not going to touch on it today, but your journey also took you from New Zealand to Tucson. So there is a story there, perhaps next time. All right. So with that introduction to the topic and the speaker, this is how the conversation will proceed. We'll first discuss briefly the orphan disease designation, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Then the physical challenges of developing rare disease drugs, followed by a brief discussion on reimbursement and wrapping up with a rundown of novel ways to move a rare disease drug development program forward that maybe you hadn't heard of before. And I'll give you a little hint. It's about investing in these patient advocacy groups. Now, let's start with perhaps the most important bucket, if you want to play in this particular sandbox, and that is understanding 
what, in practical terms, an orphan disease or rare designation means. Doctor, what does it mean? Let's start with the money part, the tax credits and the PDUFA fees. Sure. So up until the 1980s, there was very little investment in rare diseases. And this was seen as a problem because as we learn more and more about diseases, more and more diseases become rare diseases as you define them genetically. So they looked at what was preventing drug development in the space. And one of the major disincentives to developing a rare disease drug is because you've got such a small population, you can sell the drug to at the other end. So your market is necessarily small. So when they set up the Orphan Drug Act, they tried to put financial incentives in place to try and overcome that. So if you develop a drug for a rare disease, you get a 25% federal tax credit for the expenses incurred during your clinical research stage. And they can be applied over one year or up to 20 years. And then very importantly, these days, this is getting more and more expensive. You get a waiver of the PDUFA fees when you apply for a new drug application for Mm. an orphan drug. At the moment, they run at about $3 million. So that's not a small incentive to get involved in rare disease drug development. All right. So more better money. Yeah, good. But does it give you more leg room, more room to work? Does it help you work with the FDA as far as, say, clinical trial design, various other resources like that? Absolutely. FDA has a number of programs to try and help us develop drugs for rare diseases. So technically, per the words of the guidance, the evidence you need to develop a rare disease drug is exactly the same as for any other drug. Good clinical trials, strong scientific evidence, all of that good stuff. But FDA and other global regulators all recognize that you can't run a thousand person trial in a disease where there may only be 50 patients in the world. That's just not feasible. So they have a number of different ways of working out how we can do this more efficiently. They certainly accept smaller numbers. On certain occasions, they've accepted using historical controls instead of placebo controls or baseline progression of disease versus our on drug progression of disease. There are a number of programs you can apply for which allow you to talk to the regulators more often, get advice more often, submit your documents in a rolling fashion for approval so that they can review them and give you advice. And you can get the next document to them as it's available to really try and come up with ways that we can generate that really high quality scientific evidence as to whether a drug works or not. Because we are held to the same standards, but you've got to do it with smaller numbers somehow. Can I talk to you about outcomes measures in this space? I know in oncology, where I've done a lot of work, you know, an incremental improvement is enough to get your drug approved. In the rare disease space, does it have to be more of a home run? Not really. It depends some on the technology, it depends on the drug. We talk a lot in rare diseases and really in any disease about risk benefit. And there have been a lot of programs, actually many of them run through advocacy groups to try and understand how we can codify that risk benefit. If you've got a disease like spinal muscular atrophy type 1, where the babies are going to die by age 2, you're obviously going to accept more risk than if you're a slowly progressing myotonic dystrophy patient who's going to live a normal lifespan and maybe has a mild disability in later life. So we talk a lot about the balance of that risk versus the benefit, understanding what's meaningful to patients. FDA has had a lot of listening sessions and patient-focused drug development sessions with communities to understand what's really important in that disease. I ran a patient-focused drug development meeting in Friedrich's Ataxia, and it was really impressive listening to people in the room talk about what it's like to live with their disease and what would be important to them in a drug mm. and watching the regulators respond to that of, oh, just stopping where you are is okay. You don't need to improve. You know, I've adapted to living where I am. I'd yeah. like to improve, but I'm okay where I am. Just I really don't want to get worse. That's meaningful to a lot of patients with a lot of these diseases. I see. I see. All right. Now, there is one little more aspect of the act that I want to touch on, which is a bit of a gray area phrase, which is market exclusivity. Is that too fuzzy? 
No, I think it's very well defined in the regulations if you actually read the regulations. It's basically saying that it's not you're going to be the only drug in that disease space, but no equivalent drug can be approved that does the same thing in the same way for seven years. So it really gives you that particular little narrow window, but it doesn't prevent other people developing drugs in that disease area because, of course, somebody might come across a year later with something way better. The first-generation drugs for many of these diseases help a little, but you need more than one drug in the arsenal. All right, so let's talk about the challenges of investing and developing drugs in this space. The first challenge that has been on everyone's mind of late because of COVID, and that's enrolling clinical trials. And regardless of global health concerns, this is always a problem in rare disease. There's very few patients. They might be scattered all over the world. Jane, can you give me some real-world situations that you've run into that the average drug developer just doesn't see? Well, I mean, recruitment is obviously going to be a problem when there are only a certain number of people in the world living with the disease you're looking at, and even more so for drugs like those that we're developing at PepGen, which for specific mutations even within that disease. So absolutely, it's going to be a problem finding the patients. If you want people with a specific mutation, with a specific disease, your trials, even your early stage trials, may be multinational with all the complexities that go into multinational clinical trials, dealing with multiple regulatory agencies, dealing with people who speak different languages, who live in different ways. But at the same time, many rare disease communities have become very organized and they have registries and they have natural history studies ongoing. And they can really work with you to find the people who need to be involved in your trial there's still a major problem in many rare diseases of underdiagnosis, which again, working with the community and working with clinicians is the only way you're going to find those people because we don't really know how common some of these diseases are or who yeah. actually. I mean, has how them. exactly do you do that? You call up a neurologist and like, hey, have you got any kids that are you don't know what's going on and have you tested this? And I mean, how do you facilitate that? You can do it that way. I was actually having a really interesting conversation with a myotonic dystrophy group just this morning at 6 a.m. as you do um, <laughs> about exactly this topic. And many myotonic dystrophy patients, they come in with cardiac complaints and they're seeing a cardiologist or they're coming in with cognitive issues and they're seeing a psychologist and they've never found a neurologist. And just something that a lot of advocacy groups are working on is sharing information about their disease to all these other specialties is, hey, if you've got a person who looks like this, you should refer them to a neurologist. And if they get a genetic test, they may or may not be diagnosed, but at least there's a much better chance of finding all those people who are out there who may not have the right diagnosis at this time. And that will help them. And it will certainly help us as drug developers find people who could be involved in our trials. Let's take it a little bit farther. I know you have some very concrete ideas about what we can do in this space. The really easy one, and I've run into this in my own life, is participating in clinical trials is not necessarily easy or fun. <laughs> and it can be expensive. I what mean, do you mean getting biopsies isn't fun? Well, you yeah, don't well, do that. I mean, so are you talking about help along that line or? Absolutely. And that's a really important part of designing a clinical trial for a rare disease is work with the community. They're going to tell you the things that are acceptable to them that are maybe aren't acceptable or you wouldn't have thought of. I've had a really interesting discussion. It was a, with a young man, a man with Friedrichs and a company was asking him, so you'd like, you presume you prefer this pill to be as small as possible because it'll be easier to swallow. And he was saying, well, actually, no. I can't find a small pill in my mouth. I'd much rather it was a bigger pill because then I could find it and I could swallow it much more easily. And if you don't talk to the people living with these diseases, how are you ever going to know these things? I thought the answer was obvious. I was completely wrong. So talking to the community, asking very specific questions and letting them talk generally and making sure your trial's as accessible as possible to them. Some Duchenne patients 
find it very difficult to come to clinic regularly. Their children, if they have come to another city to a clinic, their parents have to come. If their parent is a single parent, maybe their siblings have to come too. This is a huge disruption. So if you can cut the number of in-person visits, it makes that trial much more accessible to those families. So really talking to the people living with the disease and their families as to what they can do and what's very difficult for them to do can really help find people who are willing to take part in these studies. I mean, that's one thing I found out in my other studies in other disease states, that housing, housing is a big deal. If you live in a wheelchair and you need to be able to take a shower and get in and out. All right. So let's say you identified enough participants to run your trial and you've done this through various means. Let's call it crowdsourcing means. How about a PI? Is that as easy to find? Well, in any disease area, there's going to be a handful of clinicians who are really well known in the space. Every rare disease I've worked out, if you start talking to enough people, that you'll identify who the best clinician is who sees most of the people with that disease. Now, Mm -hmm. they may or may not be the best clinical researcher, but they're the person who's seeing and treating most of these people. Sometimes they are the best clinical researcher, sometimes they're not, but they will be able to tell you who else is in the space. The advocacy groups in the space, they know who the best clinicians are and who the best clinical sites are. Many of them now are actually developing organized networks that have standards of care and good clinicians and sometimes in-place clinical coordinators who can help you run your studies. And Duchenne, there's, there's actually a specialist CRO that works with Duchenne PIs to develop studies, and they're developing something similar in Europe as well. And that's hugely helpful. Not every disease is as organized as that. Finding the PIs who have worked in the disease before is a huge step up. Two points very quickly. For those of you who need a Kahneman's disease expert, his name is Guiping Gao. He's at University of Massachusetts. The other point I wanted to ask is to extend the idea of the PI. You also need an institution. If you're dealing with, I don't know how many countries, then you're dealing with how many different institutions. How do you get everybody on the same page? Working with the community, working with the advocacy groups, going to meetings, and there are scientific meetings and clinical conferences in most rare disease spaces. There are a number of very high quality advocacy groups that really spend a lot of time on what we call clinical trial readiness, getting the PIs together, agreeing on standards of care for the disease, agreeing on even up to the level of common site contracts, if they can, to make things as easy as possible to get things going. Now, it's never as easy as that. You can never sign one contract to say half the world is now involved, but at least the advocacy groups have got the PIs talking about it and got the institutions beginning to think about some of these things. There's been some push towards platform trials that would certainly improve that, but I think there's early days for that yet. Could you elaborate? I'm not sure what that means, platform trial. So a platform trial, it's a relatively new novel clinical design where instead of going in and testing one drug against a placebo, you have the master protocol set up and you bring in multiple drugs and you're comparing them not just against a placebo. Each arm, you'll compare a drug to placebo, but then you can pull the placebo and also compare the drugs against each other. The Healy ALS trial is one that's been set up fairly recently and is now taking drugs. I worked on a protocol for one in Duchenne that's still in development for a number of years ago. But the idea is to reduce the number of people on placebo, reduce those startup costs, and really try and accelerate drug development by cutting down all the paperwork that each trial has to start up, take down, and to share the placebo patients across arms. All right, I see. Well, I know in the larger spaces, cancer first kind of always comes to mind. CROs, lots of CROs. Yeah. We have lots of CROs in rare disease? Absolutely. 
many of the major CROs for common diseases also do rare diseases. We have been looking in the early stages of looking for a CRO for our latest stage trials here at PepGen. And I've interviewed at least a dozen, all of whom have not just experience in rare disease, but most of them have experience in Duchenne trials at this point. So yes, many CROs have specialist orphan disease wings that are used to these rare disease trials. Okay. So let's get more to a bottom line, which is money. Can't get away from money. I'm not even going to touch on drug pricing here because that's an entirely different conversation than a very long conversation. But doctor, you've been in the space for a while. Give me some bullet points about how reimbursement might be a difficult thing. Reimbursement has been very complicated for these rare disease drugs for several reasons. One, many of them are extremely expensive because that's the way drug companies can recoup their costs is by charging a lot for these drugs. For some, particularly those that are not so obviously there's been a lot of arguments here in the US with insurance agencies as to whether they should be covered or not, particularly for drugs that have been approved through accelerated approval rather than the more standard approval pathways. So there are Big issues around reimbursement. I gather it's even worse in Europe. I was part of a working group talking about a number of limitations to developing drugs for rare diseases. Apparently in Europe, you've got to make a case to every health agency as to why they should reimburse for this particular drug before you can get paid for a rare disease drug. So there is a lot of challenges right now around reimbursement. But again, as a community, this is something people are really beginning to think about. And one of the offshoots of the working group I was on is another working group through ERDIC really looking at drug reimbursement and processes for drug reimbursement across Europe. So hopefully they will make some progress and make it easier for us in the future. Is the concept of uh, outcomes measures creeping into this? It's like you need to hit a threshold of response before we pay for this? Well, absolutely. That comes at really two levels of what outcome measures will the regulators accept to approve the drug in the first place. And is that then enough for the insurance agencies to then pay for it? particularly in neuromuscular diseases, which I know best, there is some fuzziness, if you will, about which endpoints are acceptable to who and what a clinically relevant change is. And this comes back really to some extent to the discussion we were having earlier about what do patients really want out of a drug? What do people living with that disease want? And often people will say, well, you had a small decrease in this endpoint. That wasn't good enough. Well, the natural history of the disease is a huge decrease. Keeping somebody stable is very meaningful. But these are discussions we continually have to have in the rare disease community with insurance agencies and the like, and really getting them to understand what's important, particularly for slowly progressing diseases. We're not going to see a massive change all of a sudden, but if you stop the progression over 20 years, it's going to be incredibly meaningful. But trying to explain that in a way that makes sense to an insurance agency has been tough on occasion. But I think, again, we're making progress and people are beginning to really understand these long progressive diseases, small changes can become very meaningful over longer periods of time. All right. So let's say you've overcome all the hurdles we've just discussed. You have your patients, you have your drug, you have your outcome p-value solid, you're going to get an approval. Okay. So you pop the cork, you call the chairman of the board and you have yourself a little celebration. But here's a point of ignorance for me. It's not a winner-take-all situation, right? It's like, oh, I got the drug, so that's what we're going to use now. Probably not. I Most of the diseases that I work on, at least, in my experience, every rare disease is extremely complicated. Many of them are multisystemic. They affect many parts of the body. And most of the drugs that we develop aren't going to be cures. And this comes down to even stopping progression is important. There are often different modalities of drug that together could make a much more promising drug. I and mean, Most of the things we're talking about aren't cures. But 
if I can treat 80% of your disease and somebody else can treat 10% and the third person can treat another 5%, you'll get a whole lot closer. So when I was in advocacy, we always talked about the pipeline of drug and try, drugs and trying to spread off out as, okay, maybe we need to restore the dystrophin for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but we probably also need an anti-inflammatory and an antifibrotic, and we might need a mitochondrial agent. And all of those drugs together, so you start to really hit all the aspects of the disease, so long as you can hit then the brain and the heart and muscle and the GI tract. So you need all of those things at once, and it's unlikely that one drug will do that. But by working in parallel with a bunch of drugs, you start to really have an impact. Okay, so... You see a kid, he's got a rare disease, you have to do something. You don't want to go broke doing it. We've covered more of the challenges than the encouragements here. Doing background for work for this interview, I came across a phrase called investing in patient advocacy, which seems to me to be counterintuitive, investing in something that's volunteer. What does it mean? How does that help you? Investing in patient advocacy can mean all sorts of different things. And we've talked a lot about the challenges of how to develop a rare disease drug. And advocacy groups are really at your shoulder helping you with all of this. There's an awful lot that advocacy groups can do, whether it's by helping you work with the people living with the disease and understand what they want, whether it's pre-competitive space, space projects like getting together natural history data so you understand the disease and you know what outcome measures to measure or what biomarkers can measure. They can bring groups together to drive consensus on standards of care so you can do a smaller clinical trial and still get a meaningful endpoint. They support all kinds of infrastructure, whether it's the patient registries that help you recruit, the natural history studies that help you understand the course of disease, biomarker projects, endpoint projects, regulatory science, even basic science that help us develop our drugs in the first place. So by supporting those advocacy groups, whether it's financially or by just getting involved with them, helping them raise money, helping them bring people together and expertise together to build this infrastructure in the pre-competitive space, you're helping them, but you're also helping your own drug development project move forwards. So to give you a concrete example, when I was at CPATH, we brought together natural history data, data from placebo arms of clinical trials all into one place. Rare diseases are rare. No one study has that many people in it. But by bringing lots of data sets together, we ended up with something like 20,000 patients worth of data, which had been collected over 20 or 30 years. But that was a huge amount of data that people could then mine and use to design their clinical trials. And that is meaningful to everyone. So by supporting advocacy or advocacy groups, you're supporting these projects, which will then support your ability to run a clinical trial. But part of that I heard from the big farmer perspective, you're talking about sharing stuff, right? <laughs> well, well, not a lot of sharing features. stuff in big pharma. So two questions there. Number one, is there within the advocacy groups, trust issues? In other words, you can't just walk in there and say, I'm going to give you a drug. This is something you have to build. Well, just talk about that for a second. I mean, are these people wary of you? They are. They're not going to believe anybody just coming in and say, hey, here, have my pretty pink pill. This will make you better. These are relationships that are built over years. And by contributing to the advocacy community, taking part in meetings, explaining to people what you're doing, why you're doing it, helping with education campaigns, helping with preclinical science programs, you start to build the trust that you really are out to help them. I wouldn't take part in a trial. Somebody knocked on my door and said, hey, take part in this trial. But if somebody I talked to and known over a course of years, we'd had good scientific discussions, I trusted their judgment, would work together on things, said, hey, I'm running this trial. I really believe this works. I'd be much more likely to take part in it. And that's human. 
building that trust is hugely important. So let's go back to the money side of the trust issue. Are companies in the rare disease space more willing to share data, to share samples, reagents, anything? I think they are. When I first started in advocacy, it was much harder to get people to share. But particularly through running my consortium, it became very apparent, not just to us, but to the companies themselves, how important it was that they would come to me and say, hey, do you have data I can use? And you'd turn it around and say, I have data you can use, but you need to contribute too. And we had placebo data sets from many major pharma, many small pharma, in addition to a lot of academic data that we could share with everyone. Because if I want to use yours, you should be allowed to use mine. And people realized it was more valuable altogether. And I've seen that with samples. I've seen that with data. And there are certain things, drug arm data, no one really wants to share drug arm data. It would be great if people would, but I understand why that's much harder to share. But things like blood samples, tissue samples, if they're not using them themselves, particularly trials that have failed when the company's moved on, people are actually very willing to share if you can find the right person to ask. So different buckets of people. Obviously, you know a lot of patients, you know their families, you know a lot of scientists, you know at least some companies, I don't know how many. Have you come across investors? Do you talk to investors? Oh, absolutely. It's not my role at the company now, but throughout my career, I've had to talk to investors. Give me a couple of disconnects that are common. They come in and say, well, I need a 5X or 10X. or Those aren't the sort of questions that people will usually come to me with. I'm normally getting the questions about, is it feasible to run a clinical trial? How many people are there who have this disease anyway? Is there a biomarker? Well, is there a biomarker? Is there any natural history study? Would I be allowed to do a trial without a placebo? Those are the sort of questions people will usually ask me as more clinical feasibility because that's my background versus the investment side of things. The actual putting money in that I, back in my days at MDA, we launched a venture philanthropy effort where we were investing in small companies. So we were asking many of those questions ourselves as to what the value each company was bringing and what the potential of actually developing therapies was and what the potential of bringing investors in later would be. And now how about from the company perspective? I don't know how many other companies you've been involved with. Is there a naivete out there of rare disease developers? It depends. I'm, the real companies, absolutely not. Certainly some of the academic companies that I have worked with that have come straight out of academia, I'm going to do good. I don't need to take royalties or file IP. I think people have wised up to that. But 10 years ago, there was still a fair bit of that out there. And academics who have grand ideas to develop a drug for an extremely rare disease and don't have a good business plan. But a lot of the time, a lot of that has become less common. There are a lot more resources out there to teach people about how to invest and how to build companies. All right. Well, let's wrap up here with just a couple more things here in, in Rare Disease Week. One is first your hopes and dreams, and another would be just a recent readout of what's going on right now. So first, give me how are things going this last year or two in drug development in this space? Are we making any progress? Absolutely. I, rare disease drug development has been on fire, really, for the last... 15 years, more and more drugs have been approved for rare diseases. I think Why? Why? About 50% of the drugs approved by FDA last year were for rare disease indications. It's really become the next generation. And that's not so much 
necessarily is the investment. It's because as we learn more and more about diseases, even diseases we thought were common, I talk about cancer as a disease. Cancer is not one disease. No. Cancer of thousands of diseases, which I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah. But the more we know, the narrower we get. And everything's a rare disease when it comes down to it. So there's been a lot of interest in figuring out how to develop drugs for rare diseases. There are an awful lot out there that are a huge opportunity that we don't have treatments. Some of them are going to be easier to treat, others much, much harder. But there's a lot of opportunity out there. And as we've got new technologies, gene therapy, CRISPR, the oligotherapies, they've all moved forwards. They've all had problems as well. Our first mm. generation oligos didn't deliver well. Our next generation oligos look much better. Will there be a next generation beyond this? We're already working on it. So there's lots and lots of opportunity of new technologies and new ways of getting at some of these very rare diseases, which is quite exciting. All right. In closing, I want something specific and something general. Specific, when is your next catalyst at PepGen? In general, what is something you don't have right now? You're very passionate about this space. You're trying to get the ball over the line. Something that perhaps next year, five years, that you'd like to see happen. So in terms of something very specific, our next exciting moment will be launching our first clinical trial, which we are hoping will happen in the next couple of months. We're working very hard to getting our first drug into people for the first time. So that's really exciting for PepGen. In terms of something general that I hope to see over the next five years, I really hope to see, well, actually, there are two different things from the two sides of my brain. One is to really see our platform technology fulfill its promise and really be able to deliver oligos to the places we want them to go and really address some of these rare diseases. I see it, our platform technology as having huge potential, but until you've been in humans, it's just potential. And I want to see it in reality in the next five years. So that's very exciting to me. And then the other side of things is I've spent the last 15 years building these projects to share resources to really work more collaboratively in the pre-competitive space to accelerate rare disease drug development. We're beginning to see dividends. And I think there are new programs coming out in Lorem as a nonprofit that I'm fascinated by, which are really figuring out ways to not just address the rare diseases, the diseases that are one in 10,000, but the ultra rare diseases, the smaller and smaller subgroups, and figuring out regulatory pathways to develop drugs for very rare diseases is going to be the next challenge. And I think we're going to realize it in the next five to 10 years. And something I'm really excited to see both for PepGen's technology, but also for the rare disease community as a whole. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Today, my guest has been Dr. Jane Markendale. She is the Vice President of Clinical Science at PepGen. Jane, thank you so much for talking to me today. No, thank you. It's a topic I feel strongly about, as you can tell. Oh, I can tell. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of life-size Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week, then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.